Hello and welcome to Food Systems, a podcast from the Forum for the Future of Agriculture, where we discuss new ideas that can shape a sustainable food system from farm to fork, from policy to consumers, and everything in between. I'm your host, Robert Agraf, and you can find us on Twitter at Forum for Ag. These episodes will be available every other week on all major podcast platforms. Before we get started, we'd like to say a quick thank you to the FFA founding partners, the European Landowners Organization and Syngenta, as well as the FFA strategic partners, Cargill, The Nature Conservancy, Rabobank, Thought for Food and the World Wildlife Fund. Please enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome back to Food Systems. Today we're talking to Ben O'Brien. He's the Director of Europe for Beef and Lamb New Zealand. He's been in Europe for more than four years now watching our agricultural scene and we're talking in the aftermath of the second FFA live event where he was one of the uh, panelists on stage. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start off with a question we've just we've all just seen the I think quite large-scale re-election of Jacinda Ardern, your Prime Minister. And I wanted to get your take on what you think the impact of this election and today's announcement that they will be in coalition once again with the Green Party. What do you think, how will this impact uh, New Zealand agriculture and the environment? Oh, okay. Well, I think uh, probably, you know, there's an expectation that on a continuation of the government, the Labour government, that we'll see continual push towards more sustainability, uh, that is more perhaps environmental regulation or at least more emphasis, I think, on what is required within our farming environment uh, in a way which enables us to farm sustainably and and obviously also to be able to provide, you know, sustainably produced food, make our contribution to climate change, that is in terms of the Paris Agreement. And so I'd expect there to be continued pressure on our farmers to continue to improve uh, their farming systems. At the same time, you've also got, I'm not sure European farmers would be jealous of it, but you've also have certainly have opportunities in terms of the, the Chinese markets. You have the Indian markets, relatively speaking, close by. Do you think there will be, you will keep increasing your export to, to these sort of growing markets or is there, will there be more competition in the next couple of years? Well, yes and yes, I think. Uh, well, at the moment, China makes up a fairly sizable proportion of our, of our agricultural exports, and particularly in the sheep and beef sector, uh, where it's been ranging between 30 to 40% of our exports. So there is a, a, a fairly strong involvement in that market, and we've seen, uh, as a result of that, a reduction in the sendings to the European market, particularly with regard to sheep meat. In terms of increased pressure, yes, we expect there to be increased pressure because now more countries getting access to China and in particular the US now has much stronger links with China than has previously been the case in terms of sending them agricultural products. And of course we have the South American countries who I think also see China as a an obvious opportunity for them, uh, given that China is one of the few countries in this COVID world who have increasing GDP and will have increasing demand for agricultural products. Yeah, I think there is. There will be certainly for the Chinese market. There will be no shortage of of offers of good, bad, and, and other qualities. I wanted to turn to to your presence in in Europe and in, in Brussels. You've been here now for four years. 
Uh, what would you say is the most striking thing that, that you've seen about the European agriculture and environmental scene, if we may call it that? Well, uh, I mean, it is, a com- it is a completely different scene in the sense that, you know, uh, a fairly substantial proportion of income for farmers, and particularly in the sector in which I'm involved, the livestock sector, is derived from uh, government funding of some sort or another. Um, and that, of course... And that farms, you know, would struggle for profitability. A lot of farms struggle for profitability without that kind of support, and that's obviously not the situation in New Zealand, where there's essentially no government support, except for you know some things like uh, some generic kind of stuff like research and development and that type of thing. So that is completely different. Uh, having farming in an environment where to a large extent, what you're able to do on your farm is also driven by what it is that the government is prepared to pay for, is also somewhat of a different thing. So you potentially end up in a situation where you're trying to serve two masters, perhaps, you know, trying to serve a government master and trying to serve a consumer master. Uh, and I think that must be that must be quite difficult. Um, so, and that means also, though, that there is perhaps not some of the iron discipline which comes from being fully commercial and fully open to the market, if you like, where, whereby people can continue on farming, uh, perhaps even when the farmers themselves in any other environment would struggle to be commercially viable. Um, so you don't perhaps quite see the competitive pressures being applied here that you do in New Zealand, you know, which insists that if you're not cutting the mustard, so to speak, then you're going broke and that's the end of you and somebody else will come and take over your farm and be more efficient, hopefully. Perhaps there's less of those market signals, if you like, coming through in the European sector. I think on top of that, that then leads to a situation where an enormous amount of effort of the organisations such as ours, uh, levy-funded organisations, for example, is spent lobbying governments of one sort or another for different types of payments under different particular circumstances for particular sectors and that seems to take up a lot of time and effort where that time and effort might usefully be put towards trying to improve productivity and competitiveness and some other things. I think certainly here in Europe, whenever certainly I talk to and when other other people talk to the New Zealand farming industry, they always they're they're now quite proud of their the lack of, of subsidies that have been created. But it also came about in the 1980s in a sort of fairly substantial crisis moment. Um, and I think as Tasso's pointed out um, during the FFA Live event last week, Tasso Saniotis, uh, the Director of Strategy at the DG Agri, um, you may, there may have been substantial differences um, such as your smaller farming sector. It was also possible for your government to subsidize banks that had asset losses after the land prices fell quite severely. Do you think it's it, it would be possible for Europe to do what New Zealand has done in terms of just switching the lights off on the subsidies, so to speak? Right. Um, well, certainly I would never suggest that uh, that people necessarily should have to go through what we went through at that time. That was a difficult situation. And, you know, there was a requirement that because we were essentially broke that a devaluation was required and that those measures needed to be introduced pretty much immediately. 
and and hence you know it was a fairly harsh environment for a number of years and that may not well it's probably not necessary for for a crisis to occur and all of these things to happen although you know there is that saying is you know um, never miss the opportunity presented by a good crisis and so uh, and I think there is under those circumstances having to move quickly does mean that changes get made very quickly you rip the bandage off so to speak and there's intense pain initially um, but perhaps it's for the for the better good in the long term but in any case, no, probably not suitable for Europe in the current circumstances, given the government structures that you have and the various layers, etc. The fact that you know there is the the common market, so so any effects are in fact spread across 28 rather than individual countries, and making changes in individual countries can can be done, but is unlikely to be effective unless the whole 28 move. So. Yes, that, I mean, that seems to me kind of a fairly difficult task, right? If you were to head down that line, and if you were to head down that line, then that probably would have to be over a period of decades rather than years. I think, though, that in terms of what Tassos was saying about banks and the bailing out of banks, it's essentially not so different from what's happened in the financial crisis back in, what, 2012, and, and again now, in, in effect, we're businesses and banks etc are being bailed out this was a circumstance where yes the banks were exposed I guess to having overvalued farms based on subsidies that were being paid and you know were ending up with negative balance sheets because of that perhaps it was easier to deal with it through the banking system than by supporting all the farms I guess would be another way of looking at it as well so there is that, but I think probably I'm not really. Well, I don't think we're really saying that that's you know that's the way it should be done. I think probably more what we're saying is that in order for agriculture to be truly efficient and to be truly sustainable, which to some extent is the same thing, that you need to have these pressures applied by markets and by consumers, and to avoid trying to protect people from essentially the real world and exposing them to those signals so that they are then in a position to better adjust to, to what is the reality. And this turns us quite neatly into something that I was curious about. You mentioned this quite frequently as well during the uh, FFA live event on October 26, is you put in a way quite a lot of, if we may call it that, responsibility for implementing sustainability on the, the, the consumer, that it should be the consumer who demands of their supermarket and therefore the supermarket asks demands of the farmer that there is a higher respect for the climate, for the environment of, of New Zealand in your case. Um, do you think that consumers really have that level of engagement with sustainability? Do, do they feel it of themselves or do they, I think, certainly like me on a lot of evenings, kind of just go into the supermarket at 6.30 after they come out of work and then buy what they want or what is available or what is advertised and on offer. Sure, and I, I understand that. I, I guess probably the point I was trying to make is that I think consumers are much better to send signals back to producers than our governments. And that this is really about if I'm producing product, I need to have a customer for it and I'm going to listen to what that customer wants and I'm going to try and provide them with what they want 
and uh, hopefully they'll provide me with money for doing so. Uh, but let's say the customer says, I don't care about the sustainability, I have no children, doesn't matter to me, I just want my beef or my lamb or my chicken or my potatoes cheap. Well, I guess to some extent you may ask then where does the government get its mandate for demanding those things? I mean, consumers are taxpayers and voters as well. If the general population doesn't want those things, then how does the government get its mandate to regulate companies to do so? That's, I think that's a, that's a fair point. Unfortunately, I think you and I both live in a world where consumers do um, ask that. So since the reforms, and, and do New Zealanders now also just pay in generally more for, for their food than they do in, in Europe, just as a percentage of income? Well, yes, I think they do, but I don't think that's necessarily as a result of our agricultural production. I think that's a lot to do with being far away from other people who produce stuff and send it to our shores, being a relatively small market, right, and therefore being somewhat limited in our ability to generate a competitive market for consumers. So, you know, the fact of the matter is that if I'm a lamb producer, sheep meat producer, I have a market where we export 91% of our sheep meat, so I would generally be focusing on those overseas markets, export markets where I could send stuff, then I'm only going to sell it onto the local market at a price which rewards me at least as much as I get for sending it to the UK or to Germany or to China. Which sort of brings us on to another point that you were mentioning during the conversation, during the live conference, which is that what I found a really interesting sort of reversal, that there are no strict national or regional limits on the amount of fertilizer that farmers can use, but that there is more an accountability of nitrogen runoffs in rivers, in, in waterways, etc., and that that farmers are demanded to not have action on the input side, but rather on the results side. Has that been a success in, in New Zealand, that sort of mentality of looking at it sort of the other way around? Well, nothing's perfect, yeah. And I think probably, I think people do prefer it the way it is that we organise things in the sense that it provides people with opportunities to work out what's the best way of trying to ensure the outcome which we all agree everybody wants, right? So I, first of all, I think in terms of consensus, it'd be difficult to get everybody to agree to a fertiliser limit. I'm sure the farmers wouldn't necessarily be very happy. But it's possible to get everybody to agree on a water quality outcome. So for a start, then, you have everybody heading for the, in the same direction to achieve the same outcome, right? Uh, what it then requires is a certain amount of trust by the community in farmers that they are going to do things which work and keep stuff out of waterways. And in exchange for that freedom of action then, and, you know, the licence to operate, as we would call it in New Zealand, farmers, are, you know, do have to take responsibility and front up. And sure, there'll be mistakes, but the people need to be convinced that farmers are actually trying to achieve the same outcomes as everybody else. And there's always the possibility in the back pocket for governments to come out with their stick and say, you guys haven't achieved what you said you wanted to achieve, and now we're going to start to tell you how you're going to achieve it. Um, I was wondering, this is one of the things that farmers that we're now talking about more and more also in terms of the agricultural sector, is this idea of having a cap and trade system also for agricultural uh, emissions. 
And I saw that in the latest manifestos of, of Labour, and I think also of the, the Greens, there's much more talk about that, and even of benchmarking emissions, even down to the to the farm level. I was wondering if you, what your experience of that have been, and, and how you see the, the future of such a system developing in in farming, either, you know, in your both in New Zealand and in, in Europe. Okay, well, I mean, at the moment, we, as in same as in Europe, is agriculture. That's livestock emissions are not included within the emissions trading scheme. So that's not the same as agriculture not being or farms not being in that we pay for our emissions on electricity or use of uh, diesel in the tractor or any of fossil fuel type stuff, but not on the livestock emissions. Secondly, there are kind of a number of preconditions, but our policy has always been, the beef and lamb policy has always been that there should be market signals for emissions, and that implies an ETS, an emissions trading scheme, rather than a tax. But that part of that trading scheme should be because it provides incentives and mechanisms for people to change behaviours. Right? And so in order for the changes in behaviours to be effective, they have to happen on farm. And therefore, the emissions trading scheme has to deal with the emissions on farm. Now, previously, for matters of simplicity and logistics, it was proposed that the emissions from livestock be calculated at the processing plant. Now, the difficulty with that, of course, is that that then gets averaged across all the farms, right? And you end up with a tax as opposed to something which allows people to modify their behaviours, right, or provides them incentive to do so. Because then it doesn't matter what you do on your farm, you're still going to have to pay the same amount, right? So so that's why in this Hei Waka Ekinoa, the... Um, the Royal in the Sand Canoe uh, program that we're, that we're looking to operate, is that there's a drive for measuring on-farm emissions or finding some way in which we can, we can do that or a system which will enable us at least to reduce emissions on-farm. And to some extent, this is kind of a bit of a, an arrangement with the government, which is, we've said, look, give us a few years, we'll focus on these measurement techniques and on ways by which we think we can reduce our emissions because we you know, we need to have the tools to do it. There's no point in just telling us we have to reduce emissions if there's no way we can actually achieve it. So we need to, you know, we need to be able to do that. Let the sector get on with that. And if in a couple of years you don't think we've made sufficient progress, then I guess we'll be part of your emissions training scheme. If, however, we have made good progress then it's possible that we would still want to have a market mechanism, but it may not be part of the emissions training scheme as such. It may be separate for agriculture. We recently had a recording with John Gilliland, who works on livestock um, in in Ireland, and he was very interested in soil and also in, in emissions and the climate. And, and part of the conversation I got from him is just the sheer difficulty of getting, at least even on one farm, getting like a good sense of, of where the emissions come from, how much it is, and then how, how much is in the soil. Do you think it will be feasible in the next few years for farms to have a relatively accurate model of their level of emissions and then building a market out of that, given that there's so much technical complexity in, in getting the measurements right? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big question, isn't it? And I guess one of the questions is, how precise do you have to be? I mean, are you going to do this on an annual basis and, you know, be concerned about variations of 5 or 10%? Or are we talking about, you know, a 10-year rolling average or something of that sort? So there's that question. 
Secondly, you know, I'm not sure, do we have the technology at the moment on soil carbon sequestration and what's happening there? I think that's that's problematic. I think what we've done, well, where we're at and what I think makes us feel relatively positive about the whole thing is that we've done this mapping of the trees and, and scrub that we have on uh, sheep and beef farms and have come up with a vegetative sequestration of around about 90% of our sector's emissions. So that potentially leaves us with 10% to find elsewhere, which becomes a perhaps a much more promising uh, sort of thing to look for. And then secondly, of course, you know, we have this long-standing issue with methane metrics, metrics of uh, carbon equivalents, and what we say see as being, you know, the wrong kind of equivalents being applied to methane, and that if we are able to apply what we believe are the right metrics for a short-term gas such as methane, then that, again, potentially reduces our emissions uh, profile, if you like, right? And that's not just... Uh, the important thing to understand here is that is not just an accounting thing. This is not just, oh, look, we'll do some swift changes of some stuff and things. This is... The point about the GWP star is that it is actually relates to the impact on global warming, right, of methane. And there is a much better metric for measuring that warming impact, which I, we believe is what should be the measure. So put those together, we see some hope and some belief in fact, and I know this probably won't come as, shouldn't come as much a surprise to most people who think have been in livestock agriculture for a long time, as who've always asked the question, well, how is it that all of a sudden we're causing global warming when people have been producing livestock for centuries and there has been absolutely no impact? Well, it's lower, well, certainly lower quantities. There's, there's, def, there's definitely is that, but there is also there all have been substantial increases in efficiencies, you know, and we've seen that too in terms of New Zealand's livestock production, a thirty percent reduction in emissions from our sheep meat production while producing the same amount of meat. So, again, that's not just a matter of cutting down numbers. We're still producing the same amount of product. We're just producing it for thirty percent lower emissions than we did in 1990. So, and we've just, this year, we'll be producing, well, we've got lambs, rams on sale, low methane rams, which, again, hopefully we'll see as being, making a contribution to reduce the emissions profiles of our farmers. Ben, we're coming up on the end of the podcast, and we always ask everybody who comes on the same question, the, the, the closing question is, what is your one idea, your one suggestion to increase increase sustainability in the, in the food system? Well, I, you know, I think I, I probably go back a little bit to the to the subsidies and and the market and the cold winds of competition that perhaps need to be applied to ensure that farmers become more. Um, um, efficient, right, and re- uh, able able to reduce um, their inputs, and some of that will perhaps come from allowing larger farms, right, some economies of scale, right, which which you know we we and the Australians have substantially larger farms than you guys here in Europe, run by you know a family, a farmer and his or her wife or husband or partner and a couple of dogs. So 
that perhaps, I mean, and that potentially means land reform and a whole lot of really difficult stuff, I'd, I'd imagine. So I don't see any any easy answers, but at the same time, you know, I think also farmers need to be allowed to farm, right, and need to try to encourage them and incentivise them to do the right thing, but not to presume that because I'm in an NGO that wants... Um, you know, there to be more sustainable production that I know exactly how a farmer should go about achieving that. But rather saying these are the kinds of goals that we want you guys to achieve and let's work out how you're going to get there kind of thing. Ben O'Brien, Director for Europe for New Zealand Beef and Lamb. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing on the podcast and thank you again for being with us on stage on the 26th of October. Thanks so much, Robert. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to an episode of Food Systems, a podcast brought to you by the Forum for the Future of Agriculture. Look for us in two weeks when we release our new episode. And in the meantime, please don't forget to subscribe on your podcast app as well as on Twitter, at ForumFag, for updates on this podcast, news, as well as FFA events. Please check out our website, www.forumforagriculture.com, for more great content. Thank you for listening and enjoy your day. Mm -hmm.